Bonjour and welcome to the Good Life France podcast, everything you want to know about France and more. I'm Janine Marsh, I'm an author and travel writer and though I was born in London, UK, I now live in a tiny village in the far north of France with 60 animals. When I'm not looking after them and cleaning out chicken coops, grooming dogs and cats and being chased by ducks and geese or chatting to you on this podcast, I travel all over France taking photos and writing about my discoveries for the Good Life France magazine and website. And I'll give you details for how to find them at the end of this podcast. And bonjour, I'm Olivier, but you can call me Oli for short, or Oliver if it's uh, easier. I was born in France in a town that has a name only French people can pronounce properly. Wait for it. It's Saint-Gilles-Croix-de-Vie in Vendée, west of France. Yeah, I know it's a bit difficult. But now, I live in the UK anyway. Me and Janine, we are Entente Cordiale. And when I'm not chatting to you about France and all things French, I am playing fabulous music on my radio station, Paris Chanson. So that's us, in case you didn't know. Now, Janine, tell us what are we going to be talking about on today's podcast. Well, Ollie, today I thought we'd talk about French gastronomy, an A to Z of French food, in fact. Mm, that sounds uh, yummy, that sounds delicieux, which is French for delicious. So let's go with the A to Z of French food. The Good Life France podcast. Everything you want to know about France and more with Janine Marsh and Olivier Geoffrey. France is the nation that invented the restaurant, haute cuisine, cordon bleu, the picnic, baguettes and creme brulee. The French certainly live to eat, not eat to live. The great American cook Julia Child once said, in France, cooking is a serious art form and a national sport. She wasn't exaggerating. If the French are not talking about food, what they're going to have for lunch or dinner while they're having breakfast or lunch, preparing for guests, preparing for a celebration... Then they're shopping for meals, planning to cook or eating. Food is on everyone's lips in France. Don't mean that literally, of course. Every region has its own specialities. Brittany's buckwheat galettes, Normandy's cider and camembert. Renowned Bordeaux cuisine includes terrines and pâtés, foie gras, duck confit and wild duck pâté. Provence is the home of the glamorous French Riviera, but its food is anything but ostentatious luxury. The region boasts its own distinctive rustic homely cuisine that shows flashes of Italian influences, things like olives, garlic and tomatoes in everything. Absolutely delicious. The Loire Valley has wines and cheeses like Crottin de Chauvignel and Valencais, which is like a pyramid shaped cheese with a flat top. And I always used to wonder why a flat top. Well, apparently... So I'm told Napoleon Bonaparte was served the cheese after losing a battle in Egypt and he lopped the top of the cheese off with his sword in anger, making it flat. Probably not a true story, but it's a great story. And maybe it did happen. Who knows? Plus, there are tarts and quiches from Alsace and Lorraine, strawberries from Dordogne. I mean, you know, we could talk about French food probably for four hours or more. But let's get stuck in and kick off with an amuse-bouche. A for amuse-bouche. That's the first stage of a meal in France, especially when you're in a gastronomic restaurant. It literally means to amuse your mouth. And an amuse-bouche is a little taster of something that the chef has made and is offered as a sort of gift from the kitchen. It's a bite-sized appetizer. You get it before the entree, the starter. You can't order it from the menu and they're given free of charge. And normally it's something like a tiny cup of soup or a small pastry or something moussey, you know, light and moussey. It's usually tiny, and it's whatever the chef chooses. And B is for baguettes. Mm, a nice, crispy and fresh baguette dipped into hot chocolate. Mm, so good. No one knows when they became the baguette shape. We know and love today. 
but loaves used to be uh, much longer, up to eight feet long. Eight feet? That's yeah. ridiculous. That's just nuts, isn't it? I mean, how would you carry that home under your arm? <laughs> I think you could actually uh, pole vault over the River Seine with an eight-foot loaf. <laughs> yes, probably. <laughs> well, some say Napoleon Bonaparte invented the modern baguette when he requested they be made to fit in the pockets of his soldiers. Baguettes are a way of life for the French for us. A cultural symbol, though uh, people don't eat as many baguettes as they used to in the old days. About 6 billion baguettes are produced each year in France and 98% of French people eat bread every day. I must be French because I eat French bread every day. I can't resist it. We have a man who comes to our village and delivers the bread three times a week. So he drops bread off. And then in between, we, we actually have a machine in the, in the next village along, a bread machine. So a baker comes around each day, about two or three times a day at least. And he fills the machine up with bread. And then we go down, put our money in the slot and take the bread out of the machine. That's how bad it is in French. That's how much we love our bread in France. Now, on to C, which for me is for cafe. Who doesn't love a little cosy French cafe? You know, the old style ones with the little lace curtains at the windows and red and white check tablecloths, chalkboard menus. Oh, it's just something about them. A great ambiance. And C is also for cheese. I mean, we can't not have C for cheese. No one knows how many cheeses there are in France. And uh, if you are a cheese fan, have a listen to our French cheese podcast episode. And C is also, of course, for croissants. I mean, croissants are as French as the Eiffel Tower. Or are they? Are they really French? Well, history has it that croissants originated in Austria. There's lots of different versions of the story of how croissants came into being. No one really knows for 100% sure. But most people think it was invented in Austria when the country was at war with Turkey in the late 1600s. And there was a baker working late at night in his boulangerie. Well, it wasn't a boulangerie because it was in Turkey, but bakery. And he heard soldiers tunneling under the walls of the city of Vienna. And he went and alerted the Austrian guard. Well, they collapsed the tunnel, which saved the city. And apparently the baker, in a moment of genius, created a pastry in the shape of a crescent moon, which was the emblem of the Turkish Empire. Hmm. Not sure about that. But anyway, it said that he intended that when his customers bit into the pastry, they would be symbolically devouring their enemies. Called it a kipfel, the German word for croissant. Anyway, some historians also say that there is evidence that it was being made at least 300 years before that. So maybe true, maybe not. We've got a later story that says Queen Marie Antoinette brought the Kipfel to France from her homeland of Austria. She was feeling homesick and commanded the royal bakers to make the pastry for her. Make me a Kipfel. And they called it a croissant. Very unlikely. But anyway, it's a legend and probably the most likely truthful story is that an Austrian man called August Zang who founded the Boulangerie Viennoise in Rue de Richelieu in Paris in the 1830s, bought the recipe for kipfels with him. Anyway, we have croissants. And in the early 20th century, French bakers improved on the recipe by adding even more layers of delicious buttered puff pastry. And that became the croissant we know and love today. And it is French, very French, because you can never have too much butter in French cooking. Anyway, whoever invented these golden, buttery, flaky little moons of deliciousness, we thank you. 
And if you want to eat croissants like the French, dunk them in your morning coffee for breakfast or in hot chocolate, like Ollie just said, which I don't. <laughs> it's really very, very French to dunk your croissants in your hot chocolate. Okay, so croissant is not French. I'm going to try to cope with that. <laughs> so on to D now. D is for uh, Don Perignon, the French monk who lived and worked in Auville in Champagne and who is credited for creating Champagne. Ollie, I hate to burst your bubble. Sorry for that pun. These days, most historians think he was actually trying to get rid of the fizz in the wine and it was actually the English that invented champagne. Whoa. <laughs> I'm going to stop you there, Janine. <laughs> to me, we're talking about two very different things here. Sparkling wine and champagne. Yeah, One is super good and famous around the world. The other one is, uh, well, English uh, sparkling wine. <laughs> so back to the original story. The legend says that Perignon drank a glass of uh, champagne when he, um, well, first made it and cried out, brothers, come quick, I am tasting the stars. And that's the story you should all remember, people. Okay. Dom Perignon <laughs> is produced by champagne makers Mouette et Chandon and it's uh, bubbly expensive. Okay. I wasn't there, so can't say for sure, but just saying, did the English invent champagne? Maybe. And moving swiftly on before Ollie can answer. <laughs> E is for escargot, snails. They are a very much loved dish in France. Apparently, the French consume 16,000 tonnes of snails every year. 16,000 tonnes, that's a lot. That's about six and a half snails for every man, woman and child. And astonishingly, 60% of them are eaten over the Christmas season. So at Christmas, French people are full of snails. <laughs> I have to say, I'm not a fan Though I do like the uh, garlic butter sauce they're cooked in. And there's actually a, a British snail farmer in my part of France, and he makes snail dishes like tikka masala snails and snail sausages. I don't know. Do you like the sound of that, Ollie? Some of it uh, is uh, interesting, yes. I'm a big fan of snails with that garlic butter sauce you just mentioned, uh, Janine. Les escargots farcis. The sauce is mandatory, though, because uh, eating snails without it is uh, disgusting. It's like uh, eating rubber. And uh, tikka masala is my favorite uh, Indian dish, so I'd be happy to test any recipe mixing both. I shall bring you some tikka masala snails over next time I come to the UK. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> uh, now for F, which uh, for me must be Far Breton, a rich custard and prune tart from uh, Brittany. The word far comes from the Breton farthorn, which uh, literally means far in the oven. The origin tart is uh, said to date to the 18th century, when it was ditched up in a salty version and we've had prunes alongside meat. But prunes were introduced for uh, seafarers to take with them on long voyages because they are easily stored and provide uh, good nutrition as well. Bretons uh, recommend a glass of cider goes well with Far Breton. Of course, they did. Far Breton is a great dish. The only thing is that I don't like prunes. So my mum, with uh, 80% Breton, used to do a plain one when I was a kid, just for me, with no prunes or anything else. And it's yummy too. I still ask her to bake it for me when we visit in France. How can you not like prunes? They're delicious, especially the French ones. No. Most of my, yeah, yeah, most of my French friends, they're mad for prunes. And did you know there's even a prune museum, which has in a jar the oldest prunes in the world, apparently. Now, you don't get that in the Louvre, do you? No, <laughs> <laughs> no I like plums, but I don't like prunes. I, I'm not even sure you're French, really, Ollie, because you don't like camembert <laughs> either. <laughs> but anyway, on to G for gâteau cakes. That's all I'm saying, French cakes. 
Resistance is futile. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> and H is uh, for Saint Honoré, the patron saint of French bakers. And we also have a cake named after him. And I is for Riz Imperatrice, a rice pudding that was created for Empress Eugenie, wife of Napoleon III, apparently. And it's a bit different from your usual rice pudding because it's made in a mold and eaten cold. Delicious. Mm -hmm. And J, J in French, is for Coquille Saint-Jacques, or uh, scallops, as they are called in English, when uh, Saint James, also known as Saint-Jacques or Santiago, went wandering on religious pilgrimages, he took with him the shell of a sea scallop, the cup-like bottom half. If he asked for food or drink to sustain him along the way, he would only accept the small amount that fit in the shell. The scallop shell has been the symbol for him ever since. Scallops are so good and very easy to prepare as well. One quick advice, if I may, add some espelette pepper and smoke saffron on them. When you cook them, you won't regret it. It's delicious. Mm. And that's why, presumably, why you see the, you know, the scallop shell symbol on walls and buildings and churches throughout France, because it's part of the pilgrimage signage. So, you know, you're on a pilgrim route. So anyway, K is for... A very buttery cake from Brittany, which is almost impossible to pronounce, doesn't sound anything like it's spelt. So it's spelt K-O-U-I-G-N-A-M-M-A-N. So it sounds like you should say Quigan a man, but it's actually pronounced Quingamon. Quingamon. And uh, in fact, it means in Breton, gâteau au beurre, a butter cake. And believe it or not, one crowded day in a bakery in Finisterre, in a town called Douanene, I think that's how you say it. Yeah. There was <laughs> the baker. <laughs> had run out of cakes to sell, but he still had a queue. So he thought, I'm not going to lose all these customers. You know, I'll make a cake with what I've got left. And all he had was butter, sugar, and bread dough. And so the Queen Amon was born. The baker didn't register the recipe, but its reputation spread because everyone that bought one absolutely loved it. And all the Breton bakers started making it. And over the years, they added even more butter and flaky folded layers. And it's... um. Well, let's just say if you have one, you'll never forget it. It's utterly, butterly delicious. Mm. L now. L is for long, long, very long meals, which we French love to enjoy. For celebration meals, it might be even five hours or more. It's a French thing. It's a family thing. It's a mandatory thing, but quite easy to get used to. Oh, yes. Very easy to get used to. So we're up to M. M is for macarons, millefeuille cake, madeleines, moules frites, and maroil cheese. Very stinky cheese. Lots of great M's in French cuisine. What a meal. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, all together, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and N is for uh, nougat. Now, nougat is in French in origin. The Romans made it and they brought the recipe to Gaul. And of course, we French improved that recipe. The most famous nougat of France is made in Montélimar in the Drôme department, which is said to be the best in the world. Even Princess Diana loved it. Must be good. O is for opera cake. It's made up of three layers of joconde, almond-flavoured sponge, soaked in coffee syrup and topped with coffee, buttercream and chocolate ganache. Oh, absolutely lovely. The top is covered with a deep chocolate icing and when you bite into it, you certainly know you're in the presence of greatness. It was only created in 1955. It was made by a pastry chef who worked at a famous patisserie called Deloyo in Paris, which would have been trading since 1682. And the wife of the pastry chef said, 
it really reminds me of the Paris Opera House. You know how they're golden and red and the layers of the seating around the, the stage it really does look like, you know, the Opera House, Palais Garnier, and the name stuck. The opera cake was born. Wow. Are you sure you were not born French in uh, another life, Janine? <laughs> I think I might have been, actually. Yeah. I think I'm born. <laughs> I am definitely becoming more French. <laughs> yes, you are. That's great. Um, P. P is for pâtisserie. Shops that specialize in cakes and sweet things. We love our pâtisseries uh, in France. I said shop, but I should have said little paradise instead. They really are when you have a sweet tooth like me. Oh, we all have a sweet tooth. I mean, even if you don't have a sweet tooth, come to France, you go to a patisserie and suddenly you develop a sweet tooth. Talking of patisseries, Q, which I'm sure everyone was thinking, ah, she's never going to come up with an A to Z of France Q thing in French cuisine, but I have. Q is for the Doigt de Charles Coin, which translates as the finger of Charles V. And I've got to say, there are some days, like you say, when I feel like I'm really turning French and I'm getting the whole French thing. And then there are some days when I think, nope, got a long way to go yet. And this is one of them. So in my local boulangerie, they sell a cake called the Finger of Charles V. He was one of the most powerful rulers of the Middle Ages, and he reigned as Holy Roman Emperor for decades. He controlled territories that spanned the globe. So we're talking about a very important man here. But it wasn't all fun for old Charlie. He had terrible, painful gout. And when he died, it's a hilarious story that well, it's not really hilarious, but they cut off one of his pinky fingertips and kept it as a religious relic. That's what they did in those days. Anyway, this mummified morsel has been held for centuries at a monastery in a red velvet lined box. And for some reason, I'm not quite sure why, because he doesn't explain. The baker at my local boulangerie decided to invent a cake called the Doigt de Charles Quant in honour of the Emperor's Pinky. It's a delicious sponge cake filled with red jam. It tastes a lot nicer than it sounds. <laughs> or looks. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he's improved it over the years. Like when I first saw it, it was quite a long, thin sponge <laughs> with just jam oozing out. But now he's put chocolate on top as well. And I'm not actually sure if that makes it, you know, more appealing or not. But anyway, <laughs> it tastes really good. But I just find the whole story of how he came up with this one quite weird, really. Yeah, I'm not sure, but I trust you, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, R. R is for uh, Rocamadour cheese. It is goat's cheese from Rocamadour, a beautiful medieval village in the Lot department. Pilgrims have been visiting the village for many centuries, and hundreds of years ago, they would have enjoyed this cheese. It's made as a small round disc weighing just over an ounce per piece, and it's one of the smallest goat cheeses made in France. Mm, I wonder if they use it in a souffle, because S is for souffle. Light airy dishes whipped into a puff of deliciousness and you can have them both savory and sweet and soufflés have been around for a few hundred years in one form or another it was actually their first french celebrity chef marie antoine karen god my french accent is getting good isn't it <laughs> yes <laughs> I, th I think anyway he perfected them in the 1800s and if you've ever seen the film sabrina with audrey hepburn you'll know just how tricky they are to make as that teacher is like Too low, too high, too heavy, sloppy. But they should taste like you're biting into a cloud if you want to come up with a perfect souffle. 
Tea is for Tartatin. It was created in the 1880s at the Hotel Tatin in Lamotte Beuvron, about 100 miles south of Paris. The hotel was owned by the Tatin sisters. One of them, Stephanie, Stephanie Tatin, did most of the cooking. Overworked, <laughs> one day she started to make a traditional apple pie, but left the apples cooking in butter and sugar for too long. It was too late to start again, so she tried to excuse the dish by putting the pastry base on top of the pan of apples, quickly finishing the cooking by putting the whole pan in the oven. She cleverly turned the tart upside down and served it. That's just amazing, really, isn't it? I burn things all the time, <laughs> and I could never come up with something like that. I burn things, the smoke alarm goes off. My husband actually calls it the timer <laughs> for my cooking, the smoke alarm. That's, a, that's rude. <laughs> yeah, that's how bad it is. Anyway, enough of that. Tea is for temptation. I can resist anything but temptation, as the great Mae West said. All those cakes, cheeses, different sorts of bread, wines, liqueurs. I mean, I pretty much love all French food, except for snails. I'm not a fan. And steak tartare, another tea, which is raw mincemeat mixed with an egg and some spices. Yeah, it's not for everyone. I, I agree. And you is for UNESCO listed because, yes, French gastronomy is on the UNESCO list for intangible cultural heritage of humanity, nothing less. In recognition of the importance the French place on celebrating food and gastronomic meals, it also includes things like the art of laying the table, the use of local products, rituals like the aperitif before the meal and the digestif at the end, and especially the social aspects of French gastronomy, family and friends enjoying excellent cuisine. Incredible, isn't it, that UNESCO only accepted this in 2010 because, of course, the French have known how special their cuisine is and have been flaunting it for a very long time. I've never met anyone French who thinks that another country might have better or even as good food as the French. And you want? <laughs> it's never. true. The best is the best. Anyway, V. I'm sure you thought this was going to be a hard one too, but V is for Vona, spelt V-O-N-N-A-S. It's a little village in Burgundy, and it's incredibly famous in France, even though most people have never heard of it outside, because of Georges Blanc. He is an absolute legend of a chef in France, and actually, I was lucky enough to meet him a couple of weeks ago. I was on a, I haven't loved my job, a gastronomic odyssey from Dijon in Burgundy to Marseille in the south of France. And I was following the route of the Vallée de la Gastronomie, which is a, it's like a signposted route, which showcases local produce and producers on the, all along the way. It's just amazing. Anyway, Chef Blanc, he has pretty much made this little village into a mecca for foodies. He's got a three-star Michelin restaurant there, which I'm told, has a three-month waiting list for a table. He also has a really fabulous auberge, like an old-fashioned inn, and it's so beautiful, and it really has everything you want from an old-fashioned cafe auberge, quirky things on the wall and the red and white chip tablecloths it's absolutely lovely and he also has a hotel and shops a bakery a cinema he's just made it into a foodie fantasy destination anyway I was chatting to him like you do I do anyway I went into his kitchen with him oh, it was amazing and um, he told me that the secret to success in French cooking is the sauce this is me being Georges Blanc the dish is nothing without a good sauce <laughs> 
<laughs> if he listens to that this podcast, Chef Blanc, I uh, take my hat off to you, and I hope you like my accent when I quote you. Thank you. <laughs> right on to W. W is for wine, and I'm just going to leave that there because there is just too much to say about French wine here. We're going to have to do another podcast. Yeah, that's a good idea, Janine, especially if we want to go through all the types of wine that go well with the food we have mentioned so far in the podcast. <laughs> it's a full-time job. And uh, X is for extremely smelly cheeses. A bit cheesy, yeah, but uh, it works. Like uh, Epoisse and Vieux Boulogne, which is uh, officially the smelliest cheese in the world. Trust me on that. <laughs> and I can agree. Because <laughs> Boulogne is quite near where I live. And so most of the cheese shops around here, they stock Vieux Boulogne. And you can smell it before you even see the cheese shop. That's all I'm going to say. So why? is for, okay, this is really a tough one. So a little bit of artistic license here. Why is for yes, which is what I say when any of my French friends ask me if I'd like something to eat. No, that works, Janine. That's a good one. <laughs> it works for me. Yeah. <laughs> I have a worse one uh, anyway, <laughs> which is Z. Uh, Z is for zut alors. French gastronomy is really amazing, even uh, if I do say so myself. I like it. Zut alors. <laughs> zut alors. <laughs> So have we made you hungry? Are you craving a tartatin or a slice of cheese, a crispy baguette or a croissant? Mm, it's so good. Olivia, that's so mean. You're just making it worse. I I'm craving a croissant now. I know, I know, but I'm proud of French gastronomy. Got a question about France? Well, ask the experts. We reply to you in each episode. And we do it for free. Okay, now it's time to answer a listener's question. So, Janine, what is today's question? Okay, today's question is from Tanya Medson of Wiltshire in UK, and she says, how many castles are there in France? So, Ollie, how many chateaux do you think there are in the whole of France? Oh, wow. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's impossible to answer, isn't it? Uh, has anyone counted them all and visited them to count them? Well, it's a great idea. I'd love to do that, but... <laughs> Honestly, what do you think? 10,000 castles, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 or more? I think more. So, I mean, we have a lot of castles in France, I know. So I'm going for the top answer. Yes, you're right. Yes. To tell the truth, no one seems to know exactly how many castles there are. As you say, I don't think anyone has actually gone round and counted every single one. But it's generally claimed that there are more than 45,000 castles, which includes palaces, medieval forts, private mansions, haunted castles, huge castles, ruined castles and tall castles like the one in Brissac in the Loire Valley, which is a whopping seven storeys high. There are so many castles. If you visited one every single day, it would take you more than 120 years to see them all. It's a lot of castles. So, Tanya, more than 45,000 castles is all we can tell you. And we will have to do a whole episode devoted to castles. Feel free to keep sending those questions in. We love to answer them. Send them to Janine at thegoodlifefrance.com. Janine at thegoodlifefrance.com. And we'll do our best to help. This is the Good Life France podcast. Oh la la, le podcast The Good Life France. Thank you so much for listening. And a huge thank you to everyone sharing this podcast with your friends and family. We're really massively grateful for your support. 
In the meantime, you can find me on www.thegoodlifefrance.com, everything you want to know about France and more, where you can subscribe to my fun newsletter and this podcast and to my award-winning free magazine, which you can find at magazine.thegoodlifefrance.com. And you can find me playing French chanson at parischanson.fr. Details coming up right after the end of this episode. But for now, it's au revoir from me. And goodbye from me. Speak to you soon. The Good Life France podcast. Available on all podcast platforms. On thegoodlifefrance.com and on parischanson.fr. The most beautiful French songs of the 40s, 50s and 60s, only on Paris Chanson. Available on your mobile, smart TV, computer and smart speaker 24-7. Visit parischanson.fr to find out more. That's P-A-R-I-S-C-H-A-N-S-O-N.fr. Ah!